If you would remain standing for one more moment and open up with me to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to read the words of Jesus this morning in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, probably his most famous sermon. We're going to read verses 17 through 20, and if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. The words will be on the screen behind me. This is what Jesus says. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. This is God's word over us. You may be seated at this time. Well, again, I want to welcome you here to the White Oak Faith family. Um, If I have not had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is James Yandel, and I'm one of the pastors here at this church, and uh, I'm so glad that you're here, whether you're a member or visitor with us this morning. I just, uh, I love Sunday mornings, so it's not just because I'm a pastor, because I love worshiping God, and I love worshiping God with other people. And that's what we're doing this morning. Our lives are being shaped, each of us. God is speaking to us. He's doing things. I'm just excited about it all. But I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, If you haven't known me for very long, or if you don't know me, before I was a pastor, I was not always a pastor. I've been a pastor for about a little over two years. But before I was a pastor, I was uh, working down in the medical center for Texas Children's Hospital. And I worked in their cancer research kind of protocol office. And part of what my role was, was to make sure um, that all the research that was being done at Texas Children's Hospital, all the clinical trials, all the, uh, the very serious studies for kids who had very advanced illnesses, I made sure that everything we did was by the books. As you can imagine, in scenarios like that where kids are really sick, they have advanced forms of leukemia and lymphoma and different things like that, obviously when you're doing treatment uh, studies on them, that all the rules have to be in place and you got to follow specific protocols. And I can still remember um, the part of the federal regulations that govern this, and it was Title 45, Part 46, uh, the Protection of Human Subjects Research. And I still remember that to this day, and the code and the uh, regulations around it were probably about this thick. They were hundreds and hundreds of pages thick, and while I didn't actually do any treatment on these patients, I was involved really with the regulatory aspect. And so I can remember the bane of my existence when I worked at Texas Children's Hospital. I I loved what I did. I loved being a part of and making a difference in these people's lives and providing hope in this way. But I hated the fact that I was audited about once a week. Does anyone have a job where you get audited? Maybe not that often, but people come in. Okay, so you get audited. So you know my pain whenever I say the word audit. And because of the type of research that we did, I got audited by everybody from the federal government. They would send people in to audit our studies. Uh, We had audits from sponsors and and different companies that would sponsor some of these studies. I got audited by our internal offices like QA and different things like that. I got audited about once a week. And I can remember that I had to keep the binders, basically. I had to make sure that everything was in there. So when an auditor would come in, he would go page 
by page by page. And if a page was missing, you got a deficiency. And if a date was incorrect, maybe you put day, day, month, month, year, year, or maybe year, 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 right? If you had that incorrect, deficiency. If a signature wasn't on the right page, deficiency. And so I maintain the binders. And when I say binder for a research study, it wasn't just one binder this big. It was 15 binders this big. And we had rows and shelves of them. And part of my job was to make sure that all these binders were in the proper order. So I remember I was so paranoid about this that I often would come in on Saturdays just so that I could make sure that my binders were good. These were my Saturday mornings, coffee with binders, making sure that everything was in there. I remember one time we were getting audited for one of my studies and uh, we didn't have something in there that we needed to have. And so I remember literally running across campus, making sure finding that doctor. I remember he was in like um, the clinic at the time. So I had to interrupt him while he was with the patient. I said, sir, uh, you need to sign this right here. So I got it from him. I ran back before the auditor could find it. So I can remember I lived in this sort of paranoia. I'm a perfectionist. And so a job like that was not actually really great for me. The rules were overwhelming in that job. But when you think about it, Because the stakes of the job were so high, the rules and the standards also had to be high, right? You're doing clinical research protocols. You want to have kind of high standards for the way that you do that, right? You don't want to have lackadaisical standards around studies like this. The standards were high. Honestly, the highest that I have ever seen in any job that I've ever had, the standards were high except for one place And I think that's the Bible. When I think of high standards, my first thought always goes to that cancer protocol office. But my second thought always goes to the Bible. You open the Bible up and you point your finger down randomly on a verse. It's probably going to be a rule, right? It's probably going to be a command. God clearly has high standards. In fact, Jesus said... (laughs) Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. No deficiencies. God has impossibly high standards. I was thinking back, most scholars agree that when you look at the Old Testament, there are about 613 rules or commands in the Old Testament alone. That's a lot of commands. But scholars also say in the New Testament, there are about 800 more commands So you have the Old Testament, you're like, oh yeah, that's the law. I'm so glad we're not in that. And then you get to Jesus in the New Testament, and Jesus is like, oh yeah, I got some more commands for you. And then Jesus says, oh yeah, let me take it a step farther. It's not enough for you just to follow a command. Your heart has to be right in it as well, right? When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, the context of the passage that we're in, Jesus uh, says a lot of different times, you have heard it said Meaning in the Old Testament law or in the Ten Commandments, you have heard it said something like this, do not commit adultery, right? But Jesus says, but I say to you, whoever lusts after a woman in their heart commits adultery with her. So not only does he take the rules and he adds more rules, he raises the standard and says your heart has to be right even in the rules, There's a lot of rules in the Bible, and we're going to get into kind of why that is. But before we even get there, I think it's good for us to remember that God lives in a very high-stakes world, right? 
you think cancer protocol office, that's a high stakes world. God lives in a world that's even higher stakes than that. What God does involves not just a dozen lives, but billions of lives. What God does involves not just this life, but also the life to come. What God does involves not just an infraction for an incorrectly formatted date. He deals with infractions like murder and adultery and greed and theft and all these different things. God deals with good and evil, heaven and hell, life and death, salvation and damnation. God has high standards because the stakes are high and we want God to have high standards. We don't want God to be lackadaisical with the way that he approaches things. But if you do care about God's standards, and I think if you're in here, you probably care somewhat about what God has to say about life. And not everyone does. Not everyone cares about God's standards. But if you do, uh, then you have a question that you have to answer. What is your response to his standards? What is your response to the 613 commands in the Old Testament or the 800 or so commands in the New Testament? How do you respond to the standards? And I think, if I can give you a hint, I think there's only two ways to respond to the standards of God. Religion or gospel. It's the only two approaches to the law of God, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to title my sermon this morning very simply, Law, Gospel, and Religion. And as much as we use these in the church, as much as maybe society talks about these three different things, they're not interchangeable. They are very distinct, and they deal with very important things, and they're separate. So number one is the law. When we talk about God's law, what we're talking about is God's standard. Right? God's standard for right and wrong, for good and evil. And it's ideal, it's the utopia, but it's also a little terrifying. Right? It's the ideal because if everyone followed God's law, there would be a world without hate, without murder, without theft, without all these different things. It would be a utopia if we followed God's standard. And yet each and every one of us knows that we can't live up to that. And then there's religion, which is what we often try to do, living up to the standard of God. So we'll take a verse in the Bible or we'll take uh, an idea, something that God says, and we'll go and we'll try to follow it the best that we can. And we'll find that we fall short of it so often. And then there's gospel, which is not trying to live up to God's standard, but it's allowing Jesus to work in us. To shape God's standard in us. Religion is crushing. The gospel is liberating. Religion says, behave. And the gospel says, believe. Religion is not what God wants for us. But the gospel is what Jesus came to bring to us. And this concept, this idea of religion versus gospel is not something that you choose once. You're like, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in the gospel and I'm good to go. It's a decision that you have to make every single day. Every time you approach the Bible, every time you approach a situation in your life, every time you make a decision, every time you evaluate someone, other, someone else's life or your own life, you are judging within the context of religion or gospel. So how do you make sure that you're living in the gospel? That's what I want to talk about this morning. If you look back with me at verse 17, we're going to dive right in. 
And uh, we're going to talk about the Old Testament law, which I've been excited about this. We don't get to talk about this that often. But let's look at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So when we talk about the Old Testament, I think for most of us, if we've delved into the Old Testament, it's usually because it's been a part of a Bible reading plan of ours, you know what I'm talking about, and you start in Genesis, and you're like, this is good, man, God, I love, this is awesome, these stories, God does amazing things, right? You get to Exodus, and you get to the Egyptian kind of uh, Exodus from there, and you're like, this is really, really good, and then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, all right, I can trudge through this. I can make it through here, right? And then do, by the time you get to Deuteronomy, you're like, oh man, I, I'm just done. You get to numbers, the list, the stuff like that. Most of us, when we approach the Old Testament, we're kind of approaching it from the wrong mindset. And this morning, the first thing I kind of want to share with us is that the Old Testament law was written to a specific people, but it is beneficial for all people. I think we're Americans, and so a lot of times when we approach the Bible, we approach anything, we think of kind of ourselves first and foremost and read ourselves into the story. And there's good aspects of that. But when you look at the Old Testament and you read the Mosaic Law and you read about the Ten Commandments and you read about the things that God uh, instructed Moses to instruct to the people of Israel, he was primarily speaking to them and it was written for them, but there's benefit to us. And I'll talk about that. But let's talk about the first part. I want to use an analogy. When you were a kid and you went to someone else's house, were there any strange rules or kind of things that that house did when you went over there? Let me give you an example. We went to a friend's uh, house when I was growing up, uh, when I was younger, and you had to take your shoes off, right? That was kind of the house rules. You had to take your shoes off in the house. That's what you had to do as a part of their rule. When you went to a friend's house, were there any strange rules that you had to do? You can get interactive a little bit. Anybody got any? Hats off in the house. Okay, who else? Kids weren't allowed in the parents' room. I like that. Kenny, what you got? No laughing at all at the dinner table. Okay. All right, two more. Anyone else? No. What's up? Eat, you had to eat dumplings? Eat all your dumplings or something like that? Okay. What you got? What's that? Oh, okay. Man, y'all had some weird friends. We never had to do that. I guess I was like, they were cycling. I guess that's what it, right? So you go to a friend's house and they have their own rules. Old Testament law was house rules for the people of Israel. And you got to understand there were a lot of different types of rules in the Old Testament. The ones that we are most familiar with are kind of like the moral laws around the people of Israel, right? You have the Ten Commandments. Do not steal. Do not dishonor your parents. Do not murder. Don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Then there are other rules, very moral, very good things. Do not mistreat the foreigner who lives among you. Right? These are moral laws. We understand these. And honestly, a lot of our laws are based off of the Ten Commandments and this idea that we need to live in a very just society. But then there were also other laws that we don't understand as well. There were ceremonial laws, right? You had to wear a certain thing or you couldn't cut your hair in this way. And these were kind of ceremonial laws. And the purpose of these laws was to separate Israel from the nations around them. 
was to remind them that they were living under the reign of God and the things that they did reminded them to stay focused on God and help them be distinct from the nations around them. Because one thing you'll notice in the Old Testament is that they often would intermix with the people around them and they would begin to worship foreign gods, begin to do all these different things that God did not want them to do. So part of what God was doing through these laws was to set them apart as their own nation. The problem is sometimes as Christians, we know enough to be dangerous. And so we'll jump into the Old Testament. There's something that we don't like in our culture. So we'll jump in the Old Testament. We'll say, well, there's that law right there in Leviticus 19.27. It says it right there. But we got to remember that some of these things were meant for specific people for a specific time. Let me give you two examples. Leviticus 19.27 says, Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Right? Honestly, kind of a strange law to have. And if you don't know the context of that law, then you're going to think, man, that's a, the Bible's strange. It has really strange laws. Let me give you another example. Leviticus 19.28, one verse after that, says, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. And so I've even seen Christians go in and say, you know what? The Bible says right there, do not get tattoos. And so if you've got a tattoo, you've sinned. Have you heard this before? I've heard this before from several people, especially when I was younger. And yet we have to remember that in the book of Leviticus, what God is trying to do is separate Israel from the people around them. And so there were times or there were people around the people of Israel who literally would make tattoo marks on themselves to brand themselves for the God that they worshipped. They would make marks on their body and they would worship the dead and they would do all these things. And God says, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to be separate. I want you to worship me in me alone. And so if you don't have the context for the rule, you're going to take it out of context. And you're going to use it in an incorrect way. Then there are sanitary laws. This keeps people free from disease before there was modern medicine. And so there's a lot of rules about um, just different sanitary laws and things like that. There are civil laws. We got to remember that God was literally starting a nation called the people of Israel. And so when you start a nation, you need a, a nation that has laws. And so he would do that. And sometimes when you look at the Bible, you look back and you're like, man, why, why would you ever need a law against this? But let me give you another example. Fast forward 3,000 years from now. And someone is looking back 3,000 years from now on some of our laws or some of our rules that we have. Let me give you a couple of examples. I was looking at warning labels um, for different products that we have. And I want you to imagine someone is in the year, what's 3,000 years from now? Year 5,000. Let's say we're still around. And they come across a warning label from our time period. This is, these are real warning labels. Warning label on a baby stroller. Remove child before folding. Warning label on a coffee cup. Do not pour on your lower region. Warning label on a can of pepper spray. May irritate the eyes. And you see some of these warning labels, right? And you're like, how in the world 
Well, why do you need a warning label for that? I think uh, someone was telling me about one that was like, um, for like a lawnmower, there's a warning label. Don't put your hand really close to the blade, right? There's a warning label for that. The reason there are warning labels is because somebody tried to do it, right? And so that's what you're also having here in the Old Testament. You have people doing things. And so God has to kind of have these rules that, you know, don't do this. This is bad for you to do. And so that's kind of why some of these laws were in there. If there's a warning label, if there's a rule, if there's a law, It means someone tried to do it. So some of these laws are in response to what Israel was doing. And that's where Jesus is living, in the context of this kind of atmosphere and this environment. And what Jesus is going in, and what he's saying is the law is good. God's standard is good. But only if you use it in the way that it was intended to be used. And we're going to get into that in a second. Let's look at verse 19 of our passage. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So just because we don't live under Old Testament law, you may hear that before, right? You read in the book of Romans, you read the Apostle Paul, he says, we are freed from the law. So you don't have to worry about not cutting your beard a certain way. You don't live under that law. You live under a new kind of law. And we're going to talk into what that new kind of law is. But just because we don't live under that law doesn't mean it doesn't have anything to teach us. It teaches us a lot about God. It teaches us about his holiness, about how he's distinct and he has standards and you can't just live any way that you want to. It shows us our sinfulness. Oh boy, does it show show us our sinfulness. We can't live up to these things. It guides us through moral and ethical issues in life. And probably the most important thing that I, show, that I think it shows us, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this one down. God's commands show us that love is more demanding than we realize. God's commands show us that love is more demanding than we realize. Jesus was very astute. He was God, therefore he knew all things. God, he knew all things about God. He knew the law. He knew the reason behind the law. And there was debate in Jesus' day about which of the commandments was the greatest, right? 613 commands, people are debating which one's the most important, and Jesus nailed it right on the head. He said, you could summarize all the commands of God, all 613 commands, in kind of two words, love God and love your neighbor. To love God and love neighbor is literally the sum of the entire law. But God didn't just give the people those two commands and say, just love God, love other people. He gave them commands to help them live it out. He gave them commands to show them what it looks like to love God and to love your neighbor. This is what you do in this situation. This is what you do in this situation. This is how you live love out. Um, as I was preparing for this sermon, I remember uh, when it was big a few years back, but I remember, I don't know if you remember the book that came out, and it was called The, the Year of Living Biblically. Anyone ever read this book before? It was the guy who literally tried to follow all the commands of the Old Testament. I think I have a picture of him. I'm going to throw him up there. All right, so this is a guy. And I think he's walking around in New York or something like that. And his goal, he is a journalist for, I think, Esquire. 
And uh, he's not a Christian. He's a self-proclaimed agnostic Jew is kind of what he calls himself. But he said, you know what? I'm going to do an experiment and I'm going to try to live out all the commands of the Old Testament. So he, uh, he didn't shave his beard. Uh, one of the commands says, do not wear clothes of mixed fibers. And so he said he threw out all his polyester shirts and stuff like that. He didn't have anything like that. Uh, he became a shepherd for a while. Like literally he was, he was out there shepherding sheep. I'm not sure where it was. But uh, anyway, he did this. And I can remember one thing I took from the article was how angry his wife was that he took on this project. And uh, I, I just... Guys, I feel like we are one step from trying something like this, you know, like one step from these kind of shenanigans. But she went along with it. She loved him. And uh, he even said that the, the Bible says be fruitful and multiply. And so literally he had twins within this uh, period of time. And so he tried to follow everything literally. Uh, but he learned a few things from it. He said, I've learned a few things from trying this experiment. And I haven't read the entire book, but I, I watched a TED Talk that he gave, and it was really, really good. He didn't become a Christian or anything like that. Uh, but he said he learned a few things. And I wanted to share one of the things that he had learned about kind of trying to follow these rules. He says, I now believe that whether or not there's a God, there is such a thing as sacredness. Life is sacred. The Sabbath can be a sacred day. Prayer is a sacred ritual. There's something transcendent beyond the everyday. It's possible that humans created the sacredness ourselves, but that doesn't take away from its power or importance. He talked about in the TED Talk how there was a command in the Bible to be thankful always and to always be in thanksgiving. And he talked about how he, as he tried to follow this rule, he began to think about things in his life that were going well. And he was like, man, I realize there's a lot more going well in my life than not going well in my life. And it taught me this thankfulness in my life. It taught him that things are sacred. But it took trying to live under these rules to get him to a place where he could recognize some of this. And that's what God's law does. It's meant to take us to a certain place. It's meant to take us to a place where we recognize God's holiness but also our inability to live it out. Our inability to live it out on our own. It's important to remember that no one in the Old Testament or the New Testament was saved by following the law. It has always been by faith and grace. And the law is meant to point you to that place. And I think Jesus' commentary on the law, as he talks about, you have heard it said, do this, but you have to do this. I think what Jesus is showing us is that love is really, really difficult. That you can do things from an outward, perfunctory place, but it doesn't mean your heart has changed. I think we all know that love is demanding. And I'll give you three examples. Marriage, raising kids, and taking care of elderly parents. Love is demanding. It takes your time. It takes your selfishness and takes you to a place where you have to be selfless. It takes you away from things that you want to do yourself and it causes you to do things for other people. Jesus understood the demands of love. And Jesus' life is a perfect example of what happens when you love completely and totally, it takes you to the cross. 
To live in a broken world like ours and to love completely and totally takes you to a place like the cross. And that's exactly where Jesus went. Jesus knew the demands of love. And we think that we know the demands of love. But I've preached on this before. We don't do love very well. We do tolerance very well. We just tolerate one another. But Jesus taught us to love one another. Tolerance stays at a distance, but love draws near. Tolerance turns, tolerance turns away when things get messy, but love sticks with you through the mess. Tolerance talks, but love acts. Our culture is not teaching us how to love one another. It's teaching us how to tolerate one another. But Jesus is teaching us how to love one another. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If the aim of the law is to teach us how to love God and to love others, if every command in the Bible is trying to get us into that place, then it does have something for us, but we cannot stop there. In Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says, The one who loves fulfills the law. So love is the fulfillment of the law. And that's something that the religious leaders of Jesus' day did not understand. They followed the rules better than anyone, and yet they loved the least. They knew the most, and yet they loved the least. But Jesus is trying to take us beyond that back to the very heart of God. And this is where I want to rest on for a while because this is what's most important for us. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is moving us beyond the rules into love. Galatians 5.18 But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. Rules and religion and the law are substitutes for love. Think about it. You don't need rules when you love really well. God doesn't need rules. God is love, the Bible says in 1 John. So God doesn't need rules to teach him where to go. Rules and commands are needed because love is lacking. Does a law against racism cure racism? No, it doesn't. It cannot reach to the human heart. So that's why Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is shaping us into the people of God and who he wants us to be. If you look at only the rules of the Bible, you will fail. If you let the rules aim you toward Jesus, you win. And I was thinking about this concept of the Holy Spirit, and we talked about the Holy Spirit, who's the third person of the Trinity in our New Day classes, and, you know, just, you know, when you try to think about it. But Jesus said, I will send you a helper, and that helper is the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that when we become followers of Jesus, that he sends his Spirit into us to help shape us into the people of God. 
And I can imagine if I were trying to explain the Holy Spirit to my atheist friend and be like, yeah, it's like God, he lives inside of us and he shapes me and he like directs my steps and all these things. He would think I'm crazy, right? When I, when, if I tried to explain this. And yet we got to live in faith on this front that God truly does live in us and we have to accept that on faith. And that it's not enough for it to say, you know what, I can't just live up to the rules of God, but that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us who can shape us. So how do you live that out practically? Two things. Number one, do not weaponize the Bible. We talked about rules this morning and commands and different things like that. And one of the things that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day were really, really good at was weaponizing the Scripture. They used the Scripture, and they said, look at what this person is doing. They've sinned. They've died. If you remember John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. The Jews said to Jesus, she sinned. What must happen to her? She must die. That's what the law says. And Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. He said, James, the Bible says uh, that it's like a sword, right? It's a sword. It cuts. If it's a sword, it's aimed at you. You don't get to hold it and aim it at other people. Yes, we can call each other toward following God and to repentance, but we have to remember the word is primarily for us, to show us our sin, not just the sin of the people around us. So how I try to live this out in my own life is I try not to use the scripture to make someone else feel guilty about their past. Right, I understand we're works in progress and, and we're, we're a process, right? And we're being made into the people of God. So I'm not going to use the scripture and say, oh, you messed up at this point in your life. I'm not going to use that against you. If the Bible is going to do damage to anyone's ego. It better be my own. So that's number one. Do not weaponize scripture. Number two, don't try to live up to the commands of Jesus. Pray through the commands of Jesus and let them shape you. When I go to the scripture and I have my quiet time and I'm reading, whether it's Old or New Testament, I'm reading something that, I've, that you know, Jesus says I need to be doing. I pray through that. I say, you know what, Lord? You said I'm supposed to be patient. I'm not going to try to be patient. I need you to shape me into a patient person. I need your Holy Spirit to shape me into who I need to be. And prayer helps with this. This thing about the Holy Spirit, I don't want to understand the Holy Spirit because with the problems that I got, I need something I need someone mysterious, spiritual, powerful, beyond myself to help me. That's the gospel, is when we are shaped by the Spirit of God. When we allow Jesus to shape us into the people that he always intended for us to be. So we don't use scripture to weaponize and and, and to condemn other people. And when we approach Scripture, we're not hard on ourselves, but we allow the Scripture to shape us. As we draw to a close this morning, I want to rest on kind of one final concept in here, and it's in verse 20. And uh, this is Jesus uh, again, and he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I love this because Jesus has come 
and the crowds are loving it. They're feeling him, right? The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're not feeling him very much, but the crowds are feeling him. And Jesus comes and he ends kind of this section with saying this verse. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the beautiful thing about Jesus' words, and what I believe he's trying to show us, is that without him, it never will. Without Jesus, your righteousness is not enough. Without Jesus, your religion is not enough. Without Jesus, the way that you view yourself in relation to other people doesn't matter whether you're ahead of people or behind. It ain't enough. The standards of God are too high. And that's what the entire Old Testament is trying to show us. The standards are too high. I love what it says in Acts chapter 13. It says, Brothers, listen. We are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. We talked a lot about rules. And where there are, where there are rules, there is failure. And any time that we approach the scripture or something Jesus wants for our life, we will have failure. I want us to count on that. In fact, I'll just say, you will fail. Can you say that? I will fail. Just get used to saying that. Say that out loud right now. I will fail. Turn your neighbor. I will fail. Count on it. The more you get used to that, the more you believe the gospel. But here's the thing, and here's the beauty of the gospel. Failure isn't final. I don't know about you. Um, I know not everyone's wired like this, but I don't know about you. But when I was at Texas Children's Hospital, and I worried constantly about getting deficiencies on my studies... That's the exact same approach that I take to life. I have failed so many times. I've broken probably every command in the Sermon on the Mount and beyond. I am a failure, but failure is not final. And if you're like me, you live most of your life afraid that you're not living up to some standard that God has for you. And I'll just tell you, your greatest fear is true. You're not. But Jesus did, and he does, and he helps us to be redeemed in the sight of God. It's so important that we get religion versus gospel right. I heard a really great quote, and Pastor John shared this with me, and I thought it was so, so good. Religion says, I messed up. Dad's going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I better call Dad. At the other side of every failure in your life is a loving father 
saying, what took you so long? I love the words of um, the prodigal son's story. He says, so I returned home to my father. And while I was still a long way off, he saw me coming, filled with love and compassion. And he ran to me, he embraced me, and he kissed me. Failure isn't final in the gospel. But in fact, each and every one of us can have our new day in Christ. And every new day, there is new mercy. Let's go to the Father. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for uh, your gospel, which leads us away from the clutches of religion. I thank you for your gospel that clears away all the deficiencies in our life all the sins, all the brokenness, and that you're rebuilding us in your name through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for each and every person in here, Lord, who, uh, first for the people who may not be followers of you, who are living under this cloud of religion and of guilt and shame, that they might come out of that shadow into the new day of your gospel. And I pray for each and every one of us who are followers of you, that we might rely more and more and more on your Holy Spirit, that we might pray and ask for your help in living out this life in a way that pleases you. We love you and we embrace your gospel. And it's the name of Jesus we pray.